Hello and welcome to episode 160 of the official EstablishAndRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan, one of the co-founders here at ETR. And today we have a very, very special guest. This is a young man who is on the grind in a big way. He was in the XFL streets. He was in the second half DFS streets. He's in the NFT streets. And most importantly, most importantly, I think arguably the top NFL best ball format player in the game today. It is our own Justin Herzig. Justin, what's going on? How's it going, Adam? It's fantastic. We uh, are living the grind of post-Super Bowl, which means it is my time to shine in the best ball world. <laughs> okay, I, I got to start with some background here because frankly, I don't even know too much about where you came from, how you got here. I saw this Jay Herzig in all the games, both sites, all the XFL stuff in all the best ball games. And I was like, I don't, I, I don't know who this dude is. So, so how did you get to being in all the action? And is this your full-time job grinding all these various uh, DFS slash fantasy football things? Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm still in the corporate grind. Uh, so a little background on me from a sports side through college. I worked for a sports agency, did a bit more on the recruiting side, actually primarily focusing on baseball. And then uh, upon graduation, kind of had to make a choice of whether I wanted to go on the road, make around 30K a year doing the recruiting lifestyle, kind of scouting or kind of selling out and going more to the kind of business world. And so I found myself at uh, in a you know, financial services industry doing more on the analytics side and uh, had a few friends who were similar to interest sports, but took a look, you know, had a data analytics viewpoint in the world and combined those two. And that's kind of got us... Uh, you know, head first into the DFS world. And more recently, it's been about primarily just NFL and just finding edge. Um, hmm. And that's where XFL, second half, best ball, um, maybe there's just not as much attention and as much focus to it. But uh, that's where I found the clear edge and really just um, said, let's go for it. When did this start? When did you really say, hey, let's go for it on some of this stuff? Yeah, so I would say... Four years ago is when I was probably like, hey, you know, let's actually start diving really into this. And that was more about chasing overlay. So I think it was actually fantasy draft back in the day, throwback, when they were having the like, hey, you basically enter a GPP. And if you finish top half, you're, you're, you know, you're cashing. Mm -hmm. There was just significant overlay. And uh, that was kind of a, you know, allowing to build up that bankroll. And from there realizing, okay, the edge there wasn't the overlay. In other areas, there's not going to be as much edge. So let's see, where can I keep continuing to kind of dive in and find that? And uh, I'd say past three years is where I've been um, as full-time as you can be uh, outside of that kind of uh, nine-to-five day job. Yeah. Um, do you play main slates at all? Like, are, are you ever playing uh, main slates? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll do uh, – I'll have a heavy, heavy amount in um, all the head-to-head 50-50s for main slate for both sites. Uh, and then from a GPP standpoint, we'll do predominantly uh, single entry up until like the probably, you know, 1650 or 3000. Um, and then uh, maybe up in three men. So like this year had a couple of uh, six figure banks, which um, I mean, obviously is far more just uh, finding the right side of variance than doing anything special. Um, but definitely, I would say like, yeah, yeah, there's, a, there's enough of an edge just from a public standpoint with those, uh, you know, main slates. Sure. Um... Yeah, well, maybe we'll get the XFL back. I've been I've been following it. I've been following some rumors. It looks like maybe spring of 2022, the glory that is the XFL will be back under under new ownership. I hope so. Um, so I I mean, you have this 
full-time job. It sounds like like a, a real legit job. I'm not sure if you have a family or what. You're obviously grinding your face off on all this stuff. It sounds like some serious like hashtag team no sex territory here in terms of time. What What is the uh, work-life balance situation like while you're trying to grind all this stuff? Because this sounds like, I don't know. I don't know how much of this you can automate, like the second half stuff and a lot of that. It, it's, it has to be kind of hard to automate. Yeah, so... There's very little automation. There's a lot of behind the scenes work that makes the day of a lot easier. Um, and that's for all of it. That's for best ball. That's for second half. That was for XFL. Um, but without a doubt, like it's the reason why I've stopped playing MLB and NBA. A, from a burnout standpoint. B, from relationships. I got married in November. Uh, so now you know, have that part of my life that is obviously a major. Um, <laughs> she definitely feels, uh, feels the effects of football season. Because mm-hmm. Saturdays is almost all just preparation standpoint. And then Sundays is, you know, fully just at the, at the games. From a second half standpoint, I'll prim- primarily just do the primetime games. Um, the volume's just not there for the others. And I enjoy watching Red Zone too much on Sundays to try to pick a random game to watch just to grind. Um, but yeah, for the second half, you 100% have to be watching the games. Uh, the, we can automate from a, hey, so back end, did a couple um, seasons of studying to say, okay, when teams are up or down by what amount of points um, at halftime, what are their projected points compared to their pregame projections? How do those kind of differ by position as well as kind of role? So obviously a pass catcher running back is not the same as a Derrick Henry. Um, and so I've got that kind of pre-built and I can say, okay, here's the score. Here's who get the ball, gets the ball plug that in and it's going to give me out my projections, but you still have to watch and see, okay, are they actually double teaming Tyree kill? Like we saw in the Super Bowl? Are they actually using a shutdown corner on someone? How do I kind of adapt to these in-game situations as well as, you know, those injuries? Oh my gosh. So you have your, your hand in the dirt as a football guy uh, for this stuff. That's crazy. Um, interesting. Okay. What about like process, like throughout the week? Um, you said Saturday is very busy. Obviously, I, I think for everybody, once we have all the news, there's much news as we're going to get. And Sunday is obviously busy. But what about a process during the week to get set during a normal NFL week? Yeah, so I used to be on the just build the models, use my own data. And obviously, two, three years ago, it's just not valuable. It's not worth the time anymore, especially when you know you have sites like you know Establish the Run that you can just subscribe to and get the, you know, if not the best projections, then you know the top three, top five are all going to be negligible in the results of when we're trying to actually win these DFS contests. Um, so it's gotten to the point where I enjoy my week. I spend my week on my corporate job and uh, with my family. And uh, you know I'll mix in some podcasts here and there, more so just to get a feel for where the public is kind of pushing things. Um, and that's more from a tournament standpoint. But I'm not building lineups. I'm not really doing anything from a results standpoint up until Saturday because you know, I've, I've tried it all and it's just not worth it early in the week from a time perspective as well as from a my output. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, every time I hear somebody say that, I'm like, God, we, we have to make this more expensive. Guys like Justin are just taking the entire week off. We're here grinding our faces off to get the, get the projections uh, uh, and everybody's usage is as good as possible. But no, um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So I, like I mentioned, I, I didn't, you know, I, I think I'm relatively in tune with what's going on, what's going on at, at high stakes and DFS and stuff like that. And, and who's winning, who I think is good, but you kept a really low profile over the last few years. Like why go public now? Why join us here at ETR now? Why go public letting everybody know about, uh, you're the best ball King and, and all this. Why, 
why why go why go public now yeah um i mean it kind of we've spoken to it but honestly time right now is my most valuable resource um and the content game just honestly wasn't worth my time um especially from a dfs standpoint of every piece of information you're giving to someone else is you're giving it to your competition. It's not like some others where there's more of an ecosystem, there's no teams or anything. And so just honestly, from a personal standpoint, it didn't make sense. And, um, you know, I think that changed a bit with a couple different areas. So if we talk, you know, it was actually probably four or five months ago that I first reached out to the established run team around second half because I thought that, hey, this is an opportunity. This is a game that I think is fantastic. I think it's one of the most um, skill-based games of football right now where you need to combine that actual watching the game, football analysis, as well as the projection standpoint. But there just wasn't that much volume. And so I thought, you know what? This would be a great opportunity for me to teach as much, you know, teach a lot that I know, which I'm still probably in only the first standing of really you know, mastering this game as a way to help grow the game. Um, mm-hmm. Then best ball, it's kind of the same thing. And this past year, best ball's gotten huge with, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel kind of jumping into it as long as, along as all those other peripheral sites. And same thing. Um, there is still so much education that has, you know, only the, the, you know, the service has been breached. And if I can help grow this game as a way of, you know, helping to educate, really just increase that collective mass, um, I think that is mutually beneficial to everyone. And then the last thing really is, from a personal standpoint, joining a team like ETR, I feel like I could benefit just from the conversations, the discussions, help my train of thought, help my process. And without a doubt, I've seen that already. And I can then take those lessons and share that with all of you for these areas, such as all of our best ball content we're going to be producing over the next few months. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when, when DraftKings first started, first like started the DK Pro program, a lot of people like, why is well, these guys doing this? Why are you guys, guys doing this? And I mean, it's just, you know, the amount of people that came into the game, the amount of people just popularizing DFS as a whole was just so, so valuable uh, for everybody. So I think that does make a lot of sense. And obviously, you know, shout out to us. We want to have the sharpest people and Justin is obviously one of them. Okay. Last few years, it sounds like you've, I don't know, I could be wrong. Sound, seems like you have to have had the most success in best ball. I, I could be wrong, but where has best results for you been? the last few years what's your focus been the last few years is it best ball or am i off there um i mean during the off season it's best ball i feel that best ball is a far better use of my time um than trying to grind small edges and smaller stakes i would say definitely compared to football of nba and mlb and uh, especially when having a day job and prioritizing time just that daily grind of the other sports doesn't work for me um, and so NFL, uh, and best balls a little more, I do it when I want on my time as I have that free time, um, from a return on investment standpoint of best ball, obviously let's remove the outlier of the 200 K from underdog, um, which obviously, you know, there's a right process to all that, but also getting on the right side of some luck there from a more, uh, best ball standpoint. I think there's just significant edge when you approach it the right way for me personally, I've been doing it, you know, primarily either the large tournaments because I think that's the most upside. Um, it's not as exciting for me to kind of draft for an hour to try to get that small ROI of just winning that 12-person league. Um, or the opposite is finding ways that I can maybe automate and winning some of these three- and four-man leagues. Um, so I think that's something we can get into a bit more later. And I meant you mentioned the automation aspect, um, but that's where, hey, I found a way to, you know, 
find a, you know, use a significant edge while minimizing the amount of time necessary for me to put in. Yeah, Justin mentioned he won the the flagship last year on best ball, the flagship big GPP for 200K in the 2020 season. We're going to get to that in a little bit. I, I just want to talk about best ball generally for a second. And honestly, like I really do like the format. I, I think for a few reasons, I like it. First of all, like I would say drafting is really fun. And I find like nobody who disagrees, almost nobody. Like you have to be a sick pup out there to love waiver wire and, and trades. And and I don't even know. I mean, I mean that's cool and all. But the draft, to me, is the best, best, best part of season long by far. And also, you know, I, I'm so focused on DFS during the season. It's just not that appealing me to me to manage a season long team anymore. But it's still, my God, I, I love drafting. The, the second reason I think best ball is appealing is this whole build a portfolio concept, which we're going to get into. In other words, hey, you know, if I have Saquon Barkley and he snaps his leg in, in week six, well, maybe I have 20 teams, but only three of them have Saquon, you know, so I, I'm not totally dead. I think that appeals to people, the whole portfolio idea and the strategy around that. And then finally, the thing that I find most interesting, I think, is this whole idea of roster construction, being able to generate an edge. And, you know, I think a lot of people assume fantasy is super micro. Hey, go pick the best players, you know, easy game, pick the best players. But it's really not. And like the biggest edges, I think, come through roster construction. And there's even more of those in best ball first season long. But but yeah, I want to get into all that. But just at a high level, what do you think? is appealing about Best Buy. I assume those things you agree with. Anything else I didn't mention? Yeah, 100%. Uh, but there's one one major point that I think you missed, and that's the preparation and how it sets you up well for DFS, mm-hmm. season long, whatever you're doing. But without a doubt, I am so much more prepared because I'm taking a game strategy approach to preparing for the season. You talk about the rookies. I've already dove into them. And this isn't me just having to do it like, you know, research because I need to learn about them for something three months out. Like, no, I need to take a stand on every rookie. I need to have a stance on what is my actual upside here? What are their chances of actually getting play? And so my knowledge around that, around handcuffs, around stacks, your third, fourth, fifth wide receiver, there's so much value of just educating yourself. And when that, you know, whether it's preseason, whether it's actual DFS season, whether you're doing the season long grind, the amount of knowledge and information you bring into that, I've found my first couple of weeks, I have a significant edge in GPPs mm-hmm. just because you know more about these players and what their upside is. And so if you're willing to take that kind of contrarian bet where the you know public either is, not that they miss out on these, but usually you just see a bit more of that herd mentality to maybe a couple of them. But then you have the, hey, we've been drafting this guy only around later than him at the same time. Like there's just not much logic to hear that's where you get that kind of contrarian angle and that preparation standpoint huge. Yeah, I mean, I, I preferred Jalen Rieger to Justin Jefferson last year, and I think that spilled over to DFS and, you know, probably was too hesitant earlier in the year on Justin Jefferson, even though it was very clear, you know, once he started getting playing time in week three or week four or whatever it was, I mean, he was just a total smash. Um, okay. Oh, there's a negative in best ball. I got to yes. ask you. I mean, in this market, in this environment, tying up money for a long time. I mean, Jesus, Justin, we can take some random letters and scramble them up, throw them in the stock market nine months ago, and we have a printing press on our hands. And, and we could have 10x if we put that money in some random crypto or pot stocks or EV stocks or gambling. I'm not saying anybody should have done this, but my God, tying up money for the next 10 months, I, I don't know, man. Like a lot of people don't want to do it. It, it. You know, you don't want to tie up a lot of your money for a long, a long time. Some people, A, because they need access to the cash and B, because they think they can make more in other investments. So what do you say to the people who say, man, I don't want to tie up 10, 20K for the next 
10 months? Adam, think of all the top shots we could buy. <laughs> <laughs> Just so many. Uh, no, without a doubt. And the earlier we're talking, so usually I only have my money held up for around five, six months if you're drafting around that like July, August standpoint. And historically, that's what, three, three and a half, four percent in the market. Like it's not that huge. Nowadays, it definitely feels like you're missing out on a lot more opportunity. Uh, but I think that really just touches on you shouldn't be playing best ball because of the ROI, or at least that shouldn't be your primary focus because, hey, these drafts take 30, 45 minutes, a great ROI. And I mean, great is like 20%. That money's tied up for five and a half months. Then you got to pay taxes on top of that. Like you probably make more money with a minimum wage job on a per hour basis. Um, that's not the significant share. Do it for, yes, it's fun. Yes, it extremely gets you prepared. And if you are able to find other forms of edge, so when I say these three, four, man, those drafts take like three to five minutes. So you can rack up a large portfolio of those. If you're doing the large tournaments, well, now we're not talking about just that 20% goal of an ROI. We're actually building lineup where we will have a chance at winning that final week 16 with what over at DraftKings first place was a million in the TOC in a tournament of champions seat at underdog. It was 200 K like that's substantial money. Um, that's the upside that I'm really drawing towards. Sure. Okay. So you won the main event on underdog last season, as I mentioned for 200 K let's talk about the team how you did it. Uh, do you remember the team? Do you remember when you drafted it? And I don't want to get too deep into the when because that was a question we got so much. I'm going to bring that up later. But yeah, what about the team stuck out? What do you think? Who was on the team? How did it go? Yeah. Um, so let me run it through it real quick. So I went three QBs. I had Matt Ryan, Tom Brady, and Joe Burrow um, for running backs. I went with a very uh, fragile build. So I only have four there. I went Alvin Kamara, Chris Carson, Dave Montgomery, and Tony Pollard. Uh, wide receivers, I went heavy, so I'll run through quickly. we got Calvin Ridley, T.Y. Hilton, Tyler Boyd, John Brown, Robbie Anderson, James Washington, Brian Edwards, Kendrick Bourne, K.J. Hamler. Kendrick Bourne and K.J. Hamler actually were essential for me in the playoffs, so we'll get into those. And then tight ends were Kelsey and Gronk. If we think from a stacking standpoint, I've got three mini stacks in there. So I've got Matt Ryan and Calvin Ridley. I've got Tom Brady and Gronk. And i got Joe Burrow and Tyler Boyd. Um, one other dynamic that I really have that I've been focused on this past year is building for that week 16 upside. So while I think it's very difficult to evaluate an opponent in week 16, just because so much changes from a defense and offense standpoint, I did target a game. And so Falcons versus chiefs was week 16. And so that was Matt Ryan, Calvin Ridley and Travis Kelsey. Um, so trying to just take a look at the dynamics there. Um, and at the end of the day, the big, what won me week 16 was out of the 50 teams, I was the only one with Alvin Kamara. And this was Alvin Kamara's, you know, big six touchdown day. Um, so that was a, a, a huge advantage. And then the other is I just had differentiation because it was something like 30 to 40, 40 to 50% of the teams all had either Bills or Titan stacks. And I'm talking Tannehill, Derek Henry, AJ Brown, Corey Davis, and I'm talking predominantly Josh Brown. Um, well, I'm just playing. Um, and I'm talking... Diggs and Josh Allen. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, the thing is, this is not like DFS where you say, well, it's easy to be a contrarian stack. The thing is, you have to get to the finals, which is really, really, really hard with a contrarian stack, right? Like that seems, I mean, way harder than in DFS to be contrarian because obviously the reason that the Bill stacks got there and the Titan stacks got there was because of the way that it happened in week 15, the way that it happened throughout the entire year, right? So like, it's actually hard to find a contrarian stack in week 16 then by the reason we're talking about week 16 is that's where basically all the money is that's where 
you at that's the final week where you win all the money. Hundred percent. You, you're not drafting to be contrarian. That was definitely the run good angle. There are some slight strategy aspects that we can build in to be contrarian. Um, and one of those aspects is usually with my round 17, round 18, round 18 pick, I'm trying to pick guys that aren't even being drafted on other teams. Because if you get the guy who, you know, uh, let's think you draft someone that's going to be on 90% of the teams. Yeah, you might think he's a great value and he might actually break out. Like, let's go with the James Robinson last year and he wins you your league. And that's great. But when you get to the playoffs, if he's drafted on 90% of teams, well, everyone else also hasn't because he was such a standout. But if you can get the guy that was only drafted on 5 to 10% of the teams, uh, so Mike Davis is a great example last year, yes, he wins you your league, but now you're in the playoffs and you now have a differentiated player who was a round 18 stud that no one else has. So there you're building in a new level of contrarian, um, and that's one of those things you can actually build for. For me with Kamara, it was kind of just lucky that the rest of my team was built and you yeah. know, or how, how did, at different points. How did nobody have Kamara? He had such a great year. How did nobody in the finals have Kamara? playoffs weren't that great for him he was only yeah. putting up like 20 or so points and when you think okay derrick henry had the huge games if you have derrick henry you don't have kamar right. you look at some of the other guys who had those big weeks early i mean dalvin cook was another one who i think right. up until the final week was you know doing really strong if you're drafting those guys you're not getting kamara sure so the kamara teams made the playoffs so they just didn't make week 16 right exactly yeah he was actually one of the one of the highest owned uh players in the playoffs just right. because of the success he had of course okay what about uh, some mistakes you see people make in best ball? And let's talk about, let's stick to the tournaments, I guess. Most people are concentrating on on the tournaments. Obviously, I think we've talked a lot. We talked about a lot going in last year about stacking and people just were not stacking enough in best ball. Any other mistakes you see people be, make consistently in these big best ball tournaments? Yeah, so let's start with stacking. Um, I actually think the mistake is finding is not finding the balance between stacking and value. We've seen, you know, see it each time on Twitter. You have people who are posting these just teams that have just four or five of maybe the Cowboys, the you know um, Chiefs, whoever it is, but they're just giving up crazy value to get those stacks. And yeah, that stack is pretty good. But the thing is, other people are going to have those stacks too, and they're going to have stronger complementary pieces around it. And so you're just really giving up that value. So I am still a strong, huge proponent of stacking, but it's stacking when you can still find the value. And usually that ends up being find your stack value later in the draft rather than early. We have more knowledge, more information, more confidence in the difference between wide receiver, let's say 18 and 22, than we do the difference between wide receiver 50 and 70. And so in those early times, build your stronger team. You can see what kind of stacks you can fill out later on. I'm sure that's happened with me for both you know, Matt Ryan, Tom Brady, and not Brady, Matt Ryan and Joe Burrow. We're both probably after I got those wide receivers beforehand. Mm. Um, and then even more, see what you can get with your later rounds. Because when you get that Corey Davis that pops with your Tannehill stack, that's more valuable than the A.J. Brown because look at the other wide receivers being drafted around A.J. Brown versus Corey Davis. Where's your actual value? And it's going to be in the Corey Davis in that sack. Yeah. Well, you're talking to a guy who had a lot of Dwayne Haskins, Antonio Gandy, Golden uh, stacks on DraftKings. So you don't got to tell me about late round stacking, buddy. That was that was a total print fest. Um, hey, Logan Thomas, though, if you would have included yeah. him, then you would at least have that out. Um, at least I would have. I know <laughs> that would have been sharp. Um, There's a couple more I can go with. Uh, yeah. From mistakes if it want. Yeah, so, go ahead. Yeah. Most basic, as you said, the opposite of edge is mistakes. So, I mean, roster construction people who are either 
just at the most basic, not drafting in your, um, let's say, pocket positions for how many we should have of each player. That's the most basic. Once you get that down, okay, next step. Now, evaluating based off what you're drafting and who you're drafting, what your construction looks like. If you're trying to play too safe, if you're trying to say, hey, uh, let's say I'm looking at running backs and I'm scared of getting a zero because I drafted a couple early on, but maybe there's going to be an injury. So I'm going to grab a guy like Chris Carson, who's got a current ADP of 58. I personally would rather say, you know what, let me grab that rookie in Javante Williams, who's 66, you know, a few picks later, but Javante Williams may actually have a chance at being a workhorse bell count. We saw with Chris Carson, even when you had Carlos Hyde hurt, even when Rashad Penny wasn't even on the, like had no snaps, they still just didn't want to give Chris Carson that bell cow work. So mm-hmm. trust what we've seen about players. And that's just one example. But in general, you don't want to take a player where you know his upside is capped um, for that safety element because we're not trying to just win our league or place in the top three for these tournaments. We're trying to hammer this and go all the way. So play for upside. And too often people play it safe and kind of build safe uh, safety into their construction. Yeah, you, you mentioned the four running back construction and i tried that a bunch last year the idea being hey listen i'm gonna take some running backs who i think have really high ceilings um if they get hurt i'm likely screwed anyways so i'm just gonna be really fragile with running backs and hope that these four that i have stay healthy and not be like well you know they might get hurt and so let me take some more running backs here in the 15th and 17th round or whatever like no go go full yolo so i, I think that was an interesting edge but i'm curious if you think we can carry over roster construction ideas like that from year to year, where if you, if you looked at the data and you said, "Hey, the teams that only drafted four running backs last year, well, they fought, they 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 entered the top one percent at a far higher rate than the field." Let's do that this year. Let's just take a bunch of rosters that only have four running backs. Do you think we can carry over that kind of stuff from year to year? Yeah, I think we need to look at the actual, um, let's say, data or trend and figure out is this unique to something in that year, often injuries. You know, we saw what at the very top of this past year's draft, we saw significant injury to Christian with Saquon. Um, uh, I hope Saquon's not the Jerry Bark for this year, but we shall see. Um, but um, so, I mean, I'm not going to build in my ro- new roster construction because of we seeing significant injuries at the top of the running back. But when I take a three-year view, we do know that running backs do get injured a significant amount of time. So maybe that's a trend that I'm more willing to bake in. Um, one of the trends that I'm seeing going forward is the QBs Um, because what we've seen this past year is the weekly upside of rushing QBs is what is extremely valuable when you get into these playoffs. When you get that Ryan Tannehill, where I think he had two rushing touchdowns in one of the playoff games, Josh Allen has that rushing floor, um, obviously the entire offense. And so when you have these guys that not only have that kind of, we call it from a season long, um, you know, that, that floor of the 50, 60 yards rushing, but I care more about that weekly upside from QBs. Um, and so I am now baking in that I want to going forward. I used to be, I want two or three late QBs. There's not that much difference. Let me just, you know, grab those and focus on other positions. I've now shifted to, I kind of want two of the top 12, 13 QBs, and I only want them if they have a strong rushing upside. Yeah. I mean, we saw that. I talked about that a ton in DFS, and we all talked about it, how it was a big change with separating the rushing quarterbacks from the non-rushing quarterbacks in DFS this year. I mean, it was just crazy that if you, you had to have one of those top five or six to have a chance at winning tournaments a lot of the weeks. Um, okay. Any other, any other mistakes you want to mention before we move on? I think that's good. Those are, those are oh. big ones. Okay. Um few people asked about diversification in portfolio. So um, 
when you're playing a lot of these, when you're playing a lot of the tournaments, how do you think about diversification? And James asked a question. I'm always in a lot of drafts with Justin back to the draft days. Can you talk about his volume of drafts and how it helps his ROI? I'm not sure the number of drafts you do necessarily helps your ROI, but maybe you disagree. Uh, what do you think about diversification and how doing a lot of these uh, makes a difference? The number of drafts helps your ROI, just like having 150 lineups helps your ROI at a GPP. Like each one, you are getting a actually deep, maybe not as much as GPP, where each you know GPP lineup you're decreasing your edge. It's you know, tiny marginal amount with these because you know they're get more bullets at it. But in general, I'm not drafting more to increase my ROI. Um, maybe I'm drafting more to increase my total revenue because I feel that I have an edge. So every draft I have that same edge. Um, and so that's where I'm focusing, but from an actual diversifying more put my portfolio, I don't force it. It happens naturally across enough drafts. You know, when you think of that first round, if you have, um, let's say Kelsey's at like seven this year, um, yeah, you probably shouldn't be drafting him one or two or three in you know, a larger tournament or you're going to just lose out on all those top end running backs and your portfolio is going to be probably heavily skewed. Um, so overall, um, I think you get your diversification naturally. Um, if anything, I'd focus on diversifying at the QB position because that's what's going to lead to diversica- diversification across your various teams with your stacks. Um, so throughout kind of the season, I start and I really don't think about like, okay, what my stack is, but I think about what QBs have I been drafting, which ones am I maybe, I'm still high on this one, but I haven't been getting him for whatever reason. I'm more willing to reach on a QB by a round or so. Um, because when I reach on him, it allows me to get his other, you know, um, other stack pass catchers, running backs, et cetera, to to build out that team. Um, and then from there, it builds that diversification. If I do have a very high percentage of a player, I think to myself, okay, I'm often probably reaching on that player. And I, could I get them maybe around later than I actually am? Because maybe I can still be high on that player without sacrificing that extra round of value. And I use it as a bit of a kind of self-check on why am I so much higher than the market? Maybe then I dive a little further, talk to some people, try to test my ideas and see if um, I'm comfortable with that sense. Yeah, one thing that Corrine and Leone talked about on uh, Establish the Edge, shout out to the Establish the Run podcast network. But anyways, uh, one thing they talked about is like really being more willing to accept that your take might be wrong, right? So if our edge is in roster construction, we don't want to be all in on, say, a take. And I think, you know, the take that I had uh, mentioned earlier, you know, is one that Corrine brought up also was Rieger over Jefferson. So if it got to you in the ninth round every single time last year and you took Rieger every single time because you thought that he was definitely better than Justin Jefferson. In reality, he's probably only like 55, 45, right? So do you ever think like, hey, I like Rieger better. I have him higher in my rankings. I think he's definitely the clear choice. But in this draft, I'm going to take Jefferson just to diversify some off of this decision that I keep making over and over again. Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't force it that much unless there's a stack, but I will be cognizant of um, all right. So with Jalen Rager, all right, I know that I have a bunch of him. Does he help my stack here? If he doesn't, maybe I'm then willing to kind of expand a bit, or maybe I'm like, you know what? I think that I can maybe get him this next round. Um, and yes, if you do see that you are significantly over on a player, um, you probably need to have a strong reason why, and it shouldn't just be your gut feeling. Um, it should be a, a stronger process standpoint because our edge in these drafts really is around roster construction, around the way that we're putting teams together. 
We don't really have that much. I mean, we have to be honest with our projections, our rankings, that we probably don't have that much of a stance on a player or a stack over significantly other players. So let's be true to ourselves and where our edge is and focus in on that. And if we feel that we're kind of putting ourselves out there by, you know, overweighting ourselves too much on a couple of players or a team, maybe decide to check that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about ADP because uh, up on the site now you can find our first run of underdog and FFPC rankings um, in the draft kit. Um, so when you upload or when you use our rankings and compare them to ADP, especially this time of year, there's going to be some very, very wild differences. I, I don't want to get into the timing yet. I, I'm still saving that for the for later. However, uh, how do you think about using ADP while you're drafting and especially you know when things are are way off i think by the time we get to august maybe things will be much tighter depends on the site that you use but what about when things are way off uh in adp versus your rankings yeah so adp kind of has two core values for me one during the draft and one in between drafts so during the draft the full focus of adp should be to give you an idea of when a player is likely to be drafted and thus, that, that player will be available for you at a certain point in that draft. You shouldn't, you know, you should already go into these drafts with what your rankings are and what your ideas, which players are better here and there. The ADP should just give you that sense of, okay, here's how the majority of others feel about these players. And so if I want that player, let me think about where I should get them. And let's be clear, if a player has an ADP of 150 and your next pick is 147, and you really want that player and it lines with your stack, don't think that, oh, I'm going to be able to get them because they're at 150 and I'm going, you know, I have a pick up 147. That 150 is there either mean or median. I actually don't know, depending on the slides, probably mean. Um, but that means 50% of the time people are actually drafting them before that. Yeah. So maybe it does make sense if it does add that value to your stack, whatever it is, draft them even earlier. If it's not a stack and it's just a player you like, hey, see if they're there, because if they are, then you're not giving up value. And if they're not, then that's fine, and you'll get them in another draft. Yeah. And the second is in between drafts, I will say. Yeah. So outside of the draft, I use that to test my rankings. Because as you said, I don't really want to take a strong, significant stance on someone unless like, I'm making it consciously, unless I've gone through my evaluation process and know why am I choosing that player over the other given range. So I really use it to kind of just test my own ranks against where I see the, especially from a trends and movement of other players. Okay. Let's get to the topic at hand, man. I can't believe how many questions we got on this. Everybody wants to know when, do, when do you draft? What, when is the perfect time to draft? How do you draft at this early? Should you be drafting this early? Should I draft late? Am I dead if I draft late? Right. And like everybody has a take. I think that the assumption out there from the public is that news is everything, right? So if you draft in March and you get X player in round 18, and then by September, some news happens and he's going in round three, well, it's over. You've won, right? So um, anyways, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? People are so obsessed with with when to draft. What is your take on this? And when do you think is the right time to be drafting or are you just firing off for the next seven months? <laughs> Uh, so let's first break this up and say we're talking tournaments because yep. if we're just talking a 12-man pool, yep. doesn't it really matter. doesn't matter when you're drafting. Everyone's in the same playing field. For these tournaments where they're going to release the major tournaments probably shortly after the draft, so we're talking maybe May, June, and now we've got to decide over the next three months where's my edge. I used to be on team, let me get in there as early as possible 
because that's where you can get the pre-injury, pre-major news guys. And since the goal is to find a unique team that has edge throughout, I thought that was where the best edge is going to be is let me draft Tony Pollard before maybe Zeke has a holdout. Let me draft someone before we have this major injury. Uh, And I think there is still some value to that. However, I have now, it's a slowly shifted last year. And I'm now fully a fan of, I want to draft as late as possible. And there's a couple different reasons there. Um, One big one being that's the easiest competition. The people who are drafting in May and June and July are the hardcore people like all of us who have been studying, who have been there. And even if like, what was that? The virgins. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And even if you think that you have an edge, you're smarter, you're better, whatever it is, you have a better player take, those people at least know what roster construction is. You don't have many of the people there just throwing away and paying for the rake. Uh, So without a doubt, the competition is significantly um, you know, worse as we get closer. Uh, the second is, and so we've seen this in the data, the teams that win their leagues closer to the regular season have a higher point total than the teams that are drafted early on and win their leagues. And that makes sense because there's more information, there's more knowledge out there. We're less likely to be drafting the guys who get cut. We're more likely to be drafting the guys who are starters. Mm-hmm. Uh, why that matters is when we then get to the playoffs, those players, those teams are probably better situated teams and they do have, even if it is a small edge, they probably have. And yes, there are probably going to be a few teams in that early drafting period that have that great player that gives them an amazing team. But the truth is once you get to the playoffs and the majority of these, it's still such a, I don't want to say crapshoot, but there's a lot of luck involved because you need a great team. Yes, but you've got to win. You're, you know, usually it's, you get in a new league of 12, you have to win that league of 12 three straight times against other people who keep winning their leagues of 12. Mm-hmm. So the goal, or at least my goal really is twofold when I'm building these. One, win my league. You want to give yourself as many dart throws as possible in the playoffs. And two, optimize for week 16, because that's where the true money is. That's where the true value is. So let me see how many teams I can get through to win my league. And also being a, you know, have any form of an edge as possible in that championship week. Yeah. The argument that people are going to make is that I drafted early and I got a guy 12 rounds ahead of ADP. I have the best possible team. Nobody can have my team because I I don't know, let's say Zeke uh, uh, blows out his knee in August and you have Tony Pollard in the uh, 13th round from June. Nobody else is going to have 13th round Tony Pollard. So in theory, you could have the best team. I don't really subscribe to that theory, but maybe you have more data-driven response on why that's just a bad way to think. Because I do think that's the way most, uh, a lot of people think about best ball. Right. And without a doubt, if you are building for the team with the highest upside for the regular season, the team that scores the most points in the regular season, I probably would consider early as possible because that's how you really are building for that outlier player. But Once you get that, so, hey, how many of those teams are you actually going to get to advance? It's not that many. And you then got to cancel out all those players that may still be on that team or other teams that maybe blew out that ACL in the preseason, got cut, whatever it is, and now you're losing some value there. So you may get that 12th-round Tyreek in the playoffs, but you're also pairing it with a fourth-round, I don't know, what was it? Was it was Bryce last year with a – yeah, I don't remember. But uh, someone else who has, like, a major injury. And so – from an outlier perspective, it's definitely possible, but I want to get as many darts in. And 
if you that first point that I made, the level of competition those yeah. couple weeks before the season, I'm probably winning those drafts. What I wanted a 12 should be 8%. I think my win rate is something over there around like 25, 30%. While it's mm-hmm. probably about half of that if I'm drafting earlier on. Yeah, for sure. Um, Sharp Boomer asked, what are, you, what are Justin's thoughts on how best ball drafting strategy should shift based on the time of the offseason? So let's say you do want to draft early. Let's say you want to draft before the NFL draft, before free agency or, or right after or right up. How do you shift how you're thinking about drafts then? Yeah, I mean, so the earlier on is the more uncertainty, right? And we love uncertainty. We always bring the poker example of you're not playing poker with your cards up. That'd be boring. We play with them down because we want to use our edge. Uh, whether it's by numbers, information, whatever. With this, lean into that uncertainty. People are scared because of the unknown. They don't know where this player ends up. They're too concerned. Yeah, but what if this player gets drafted like an A.J. Dillon or he's behind Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams? Like, I don't want to deal with that. Yeah, too bad if it does. Maybe your eighth round or tenth round or whatever it is just doesn't pan out, and that's fine, and you probably don't, don't win that draft, and that's also fine because your chances of winning that draft were slim anyways. But what if that player does end up in that great situation? And that's where we really want to be focusing on, hey, our goal is not to finish in the top half. Our big goal isn't to get a team that we're happy with. Our goal is to win that group and then also win the future. So go for your upside, lean into that uncertainty and grind the edge and use a site like ETR who is grinding that edge for you to at least give you a leg up that you can as we're going to be going through all the news, all the information, all the pre, post, draft, et cetera. Right, exactly. Um, okay, last thing before listener questions. Um, let's say you had $100 or, or $500 you wanted to play on a Sunday during the regular season. Uh, how would you play? It sounds like you've played everything. Would you play DFS cash? Would you play DFS GPPs? Would you play one week best ball? Would you play second half contest? Would you bet? Player props, I mean, geez, the, the options are endless these days. But if you had 100 or 500 or something like that to play on a Sunday, what kind of format do you think is the best right now? Yeah, I mean, if, if it's me personally, I would say I'm going to go play that second half of the fourth quarter slates. And why? Because that's where I feel I have the greatest edge. And yes, that's extremely focused on me because of the work that I've done. But I say that to give you advice of, hey, if you're putting $100 or $500 in it and your goal is to really build a bankroll, turn that into an AV situation, then find something that you have an edge on. Yeah. Three, four years ago was when I was on, you know, on draft, which was the pre-underdog company. And I found that there was edge because people didn't pay attention to MLB on whether it was going to rain. And so whenever I never drafted people in rainy situations, people would just thought I was really lucky. And I, I leaned into that. I named myself four leaf clover. I was like, ah, oh, <laughs> got so lucky here. Woo, here we go. Um, and like, that was an edge. So if you're going to play those small stakes and you really, your goal, not a, if your goal is just to have fun, then go play a GVP, have some fun, watch some football. But if you really want to build a bankroll and turn this into like an EV opportunity, find something that you have edge in. Yeah. I, I, there was a time in my life I dedicated an unhealthy amount of time to the WNBA. And, and I mean, I was, I, I swear there wasn't like a hundred people on earth that were more knowledgeable about the W about WNBA uh, than me. And it was great, man. I, I really did love it. And like Justin said, I didn't, it's not that I love the WNBA, although I do think it is somewhat underrated league. But anyways, um, I thought that was the biggest edge too. I mean, definitely the biggest edge that I've had in DFS by far. Um, okay. X, XFL is a perfect example. And oh, yeah. I know you were there as well, but there were probably three or four of us that I would say that you could just tell had a level of familiarity, strategy, whatever amongst the you know rest of the field. Yeah. And 
it was printing money. Oh, yeah. Bring back the XFL. Okay. Listener questions. Let's get to them here from our good friend. Michael Leone said, how did Herzig feel about losing the FFWS finals to a pair of squabbling old couple, to a squabbling old couple, me and Gretch? Yeah, I don't even know what the FFWS finals were, but uh, yeah, he lost in the finals to them. Sad times. That's true. Uh, so that is the Fantasy Football World Series. Uh, it was an invite-only league. It had um, Michael Leone and Gretch for a team. It had a bunch of the others from the industry in it. Uh, and they were a solid team. So it's uh, actually four four-week periods. And so each one is different kind of contest between standard, um, best ball, super flex, and then fan, uh, playoff kind of simulator where you just pick a team. And they finished fourth, I think, in three out of four. Those are almost every one, which got them enough in the top three to advance the finals, which was a week three competition in week 17. Um despite winning i think i won two of the different periods i think i i did well up until week 17 they drafted a fantastic week 17 i think they had derrick henry and dalvin cook or something i went with Devonte. um so props to them um they, they they were they were a very strong game uh second question from bryce he says many of my best ball lineups were crushed by so many injuries in places where i only had two players in a specific position quarterback or tight end or four for running back do you think it's important to have a more balanced approach with positions, i.e. three tight ends and three quarterbacks? And yeah, we, we already talked about this and we will have articles. We do actually have already articles on the site about optimal position allocations uh, for each. Uh, and we've run it uh, based on data, historical data by site also. But anyways, we already talked about this a little bit about being fragile. We are willing to be fragile, right, Justin? Like this whole idea that, man, I got crushed by injuries last year. So this year I'm definitely drafting three quarterbacks or I'm definitely drafting you know, seven running backs. I don't think that's the way that we want to think. But any response here for Bryce, who sounds like he got buried by injuries last year? Yeah, I mean, like he specifically asked about QB and tight end. So let's use Dak Prescott and George Kittle as examples. If you only drafted two of each position and you drafted one of those, like, yeah, you probably didn't win your league. But here's the thing. Who were you going to draft as your third QB or your third tight end? You still probably weren't going to win that league. It wasn't going to add you that much value. And if you did, you definitely weren't going to win the next round of the playoffs and keep going because you lost out, unfortunately, on a very high cost player. And same thing with Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, any of those top running back. So the truth is you're going to have injuries and it sucks, but like, okay, take it, take that ticket, throw it away and move on to the next one. That's all it is. But don't start building for safety because of something that, you know, you were going to lose anyways. Exactly. Yeah. One of our biggest edges is going to be being fragile and, and playing for upside and not worrying about that for sure. Uh, from T Strack, he says, when tracking a large portfolio of drafts, what's more important to you, individual player exposures or team slash stack exposures? Yeah, and to be honest, I've never actually thought of it as team stack expo exposures. And I think that's kind of an interesting way too. Um, but what I would say is what I said earlier, where I think of it as QB exposure, because mm -hmm. I know that I'm building stacks and I know that I'm building teams. So when I say stacks, I'm not only talking about QB wide receiver, QB tight end, I'm talking about running back too. Even if it's a Derrick Henry, Ryan Tannehill situation where in one game, they may not help each other out that much, even though there probably is some level of correlation. Um, from a season long, there's significant correlation because we're one to bet on teams. So when we bet on teams, that's where they have the most success if that team does well. And so when I think of player exposure levels, as we said earlier with the individual, okay, use that as your test and kind of just make sure you're um, you know, not crazy one way or the other. But then I want to look at my QBs. And if my, my, my QBs are aligned with how I want to have my ownership, 
then my other teams and stacks are going to fall into place. Yeah, it sounds like from the team that you won with, at least, that you had a bunch of single stacks. When we did a lot of best ball coverage last year, we were more into double stacking and even more being willing to triple stack and, you know, your last round pick, Logan Thomas, you know, st- stuff like that, that uh, trying to create triple and even sometimes quadruple stacks. It's, it sounds like you might be more into single stacks. I don't know if that's true or not, but we got a question from DFS Wins. He said, should you be trying to single stack or double stack with each QB on your roster? Yeah, no, I would say double, triple stack, pretty much anything up to four, maybe even five for a team, to be honest. Um, that was obviously more of an outlier, and it was probably a situation where I just, you know, wasn't able to complete it. So I'm like, hey, if I can't complete this stack, let me just throw another player for another stack or something. Mm-hmm. Um, end of the day, we want to bet on teams. Last year, I was all over the Cowboys. They had so much players there that were like, you know, if this Cowboys team does put up – if they produce the way they produced the first five weeks with Dak, where he was leading the league and what passing yards by 500 plus, like they were all going to go off. And that's where you just want as many pieces of the pie as possible with one team. Yeah, for sure. Um, from TJ, he says during the draft days, Justin was dominating the three man lobby, essentially mass entering every three man possible. Can you talk about what this was like, both from a strategy standpoint, but also from a life standpoint, how did you balance firing best ball with getting on the team? It's a good question. From TJ, I mean, sitting there doing drafts all day. I used to make fun of Peter so much about it. I told the story a couple of times. I mean, we were in Yosemite. We are supposed to be on vacation. And uh, Peter's sitting there doing drafts all day, all night on his phone. Uh, what do you have to say to TJ? Yeah, uh, Peter and I have definitely talked about this in the past. And it'd be a funny lot of things for, um, and I'll just let you guess. How many drafts do you think the most that I've done in one summer? Oh, my God. Most drafts in one summer. Uh, 1,200. 30,000. <laughs> that's embarrassing. You should not admit that. I, I didn't I didn't realize that the, that the three mans and the four mans only take like five minutes. And so what happened is I was, able to, I was able to find a way to automate them. And so as you know, Peter Jennings comes into this conversation, it was interesting. So for the three mans, four mans, he and I were in so many of the drafts. And uh, predominantly, we'd be going against each other in the $50, $100, ones. And uh, we both, I would say, had an edge. Um, I don't know who had an edge between us. We both felt that we did. Um, But I would say we both had an edge over 90% of our opponents. But that edge was smaller because we were doing the same thing. And predominantly what that was is drafting Kelsey, usually two overall. Uh, Because when you take a look at value above replacement player, Kelsey was arguably the number one player, but we would, you know, you could usually get him two, three. However, that's for those more expensive ones where I'm drafting against Peter. Um, I wanted to do, okay, what about these $1, $3, $5 ones where the players don't have this level of sophistication, don't have that same strategy. It's not worth it for me to kind of be manually in there playing. So I said, okay, I'm just going to set my rankings. I'm going to set my player limits so I can always have my three QB, six running back, seven wide receiver, and two tight ends. And I'm likely drafting Kelsey. I think I probably had him anywhere between like three or four. And I was honestly getting him in that second round. Um, I think I probably had had him like four or five. Um, And the truth is, if someone was drafting live against me and was taking the right process, they did have an edge against me. And I was okay with that because over amount of volume of those 30,000 drafts going against a larger population of people who weren't drafting Kelsey or um, Kittle, Kittle was going like in the sixth, seventh round of these things when he should have been like second or third. Um, so I kind of just said, Hey, I'm willing to give up a small amount of EV for each individual draft 
in exchange for having as much volume as possible. And I'm talking like this was a large amount of volume from a cost. Well, I mean, with 30,000 drafts, you know, um, and it, it was worth it. And so it wasn't as much of a toll because it's all being run on the you know app and stuff. And there was no bots or anything. This was all part of their software. And yeah. That's interesting. I didn't realize that you could just set it and forget it. I thought you at least had to be there for one pick. Um, you, can, you can auto draft. So with can, the draft yeah. format, you could just say, hey, I want to enter 100 drafts. So I enter 100. I use my rankings and it just speeds on through my pick. And so other people can draft against it. Sure. Okay. Um, Patrick's question we already answered. Uh, Dan said, would your strategy change if you're only firing a few bullets into the contest? versus max entering if so how so yeah there's probably a lot of people listening that don't want to uh have 100 teams in the tournament what if you only had a few would your strategy change at all yeah i'd say not really um each draft i just want to draft a team that i think has the highest ev and that ev is based off you know winning that round and having the chance at winning the larger tournament um as i mentioned i'm not really trying to force diversification so whether it's five lineups or 50 i think i'm still going into that draft with the same mindset um if you're taking this more of just a fun thing and you're just doing three or five, like, sure, you're, it's a, you know, it's a season long thing. Maybe you want to draft players that you're a little more optimistic on because you're not going to get the chance to fall for that, have them fall to you at value later on. And so, you know, that's based off what your belief is. Truth is that team then probably has a bit of a loss of edge against someone who is drafting a larger portfolio. Who's getting those same players later on in the draft that values, mm -hmm. um, that's just something you have to accept. So you got to decide like, Hey, if you're playing the millionaire maker, are you going to build a strong team because you think Patrick Mahomes is the best for that week? Or are you going to say, you know what, I'm going to build a team that's most likely going to bust, but I'm going to use someone uh, like, I don't know, you know, let's go with a uh, Joe Burrow this year, if he's healthy and go with a stack that no one's really building. Yeah, for sure. Okay. We said it all on best ball uh, throughout the next, I don't know, Six months, seven months, Justin is going to be writing an article once or twice a month about best ball, his strategy, his thoughts. He's also working on the rankings with us, which are up on the site right now, all part of the draft game, which is $34.99. But Justin, huge addition for the best ball stuff. Super interesting. I'm going to try to be in the best ball streets more this year. And honestly, not even for the money. It's really for the reason that, that Justin said, I want to be ready to play DFS in week one. I want to be ready to draft season long in week one. And I can't like... It's just not in me to get up and take a mock draft seriously with no money on the line. And so I think just playing best ball just for that reason alone makes um, a lot, a lot, a lot of sense. Uh, Justin, tell the people where they can find you. Uh, yeah, where can they find you on on social or anything else? Yeah, um, so at Justin Herzig, H-E-R-Z-I-G. Um, that's my main Twitter. That's where I'm spending all my time during the offseason. Um, it'll probably be best ball and maybe a little uh, – NFT non-fungible token talk, but uh, for the most part, it's uh, all the stuff that we're talking about and, you know, DFS focus. Yeah. Top shot streets continue to pop. Okay. Thank you to Justin for being here. We'll be back next week with Silva for the first Silva podcast of the off season. Next week, we'll be going through our takes from last August slash September and seeing how we did, what we got right, what we got wrong. I'm looking forward to it. I think it will be interesting for sure. So check back in for that next week. For producer Luke, for Justin, I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm -hmm.